Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, the recipe for raising smarter children. You need another set of socio-environmental interventions targeted at the home, at the parents, at the child that are really helping those children to reach their ultimate potential. Researchers identify key factors that can significantly boost the development of children in low and middle income countries, plus the growing challenge of funding basic science research and one new strategy to help support the work of scientists. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Thursday, February 9th, 2017. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. And we begin this week with an interesting question. Is there a way to give a child's brain a boost before they're born and after they're born? New research from the Harvard Chan School has identified two key interventions that can add the equivalent of up to one full year of schooling to a child's cognitive abilities between the ages of 9 and 12. The study was led by Anuraj Shankar, senior research scientist in the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard Chan School. Between 2012 and 2014, Shankar and his team extensively tested Indonesian children whose mothers had participated in an earlier study on the effects of vitamins during pregnancy. That original study found that those vitamins played a critical role in the health of babies. This new research found that the vitamins also boosted children's cognitive ability, specifically something called procedural memory. Procedural memory is involved in actions that we take without really thinking about them, for example, typing or driving a car. Shankar says this is closely tied to the learning of new skills and is important for a child's academic performance and in their daily life. He says this was the first study to look at this type of cognitive development in a low-income country. It's really quite remarkable because uh, to have something in pregnancy, uh, something as feasible as an intervention, can actually be seen to have this long-term effect because it's known that many other things can potentially affect uh, child cognition, child cognitive development, and actually to see the signal from that so many years afterwards, equivalent to half a year or one year of schooling, is really quite remarkable. But the effect of the vitamins was not the only key takeaway from the research. Shankar and his team found that exposing children to a nurturing environment in early life has more of an impact on their cognitive development than biological factors, things such as low birth weight or the nutritional status of a mother during pregnancy. Because we had collected that information during the pregnancy, so we could actually look long-term for the first time, what is the relative contribution of the home environment, maternal education, father's education, maternal... uh, emotional status, is she depressed or not, and so forth. Uh, the home environment, is it uh, a friendly environment for the child, how much time the parents spend with the child, all those sorts of things. So we could look very carefully for the first time, really, looking at all these uh, biological versus the socio-environmental factors and look to see across these multiple domains of cognition, what's the relative contribution of these. So what we saw, in fact, was in many cases two to three-fold more impact of the socio-environmental determinants compared, compared with the uh, biological ones. Shankar says the implications of these findings are significant because it means that the global health community can develop interventions that not only help children survive, but thrive. And so what our findings are saying is that those things, yes, those things do have a contribution. They're important. But if we only address those things, we're still not going to have thriving populations. So you need another set of social or socio-environmental interventions targeted at the home, at the parents, at the child, that are really helping those children to reach their ultimate potential. 
And without those additional programs being added to the front line, these frontline health and, and I would say development uh, workers, we're not going to achieve the thriving, thriving populations. Now, currently in public health, almost every intervention that we track and that we promote are targeted at biological outcomes. So the implications of our findings are that we actually have to change the way that we're thinking about public health delivery on the front lines. Shankar says an example of that type of socio-environmental intervention could be working with parents to ensure they're providing a stimulating and engaging environment for children, such as singing with them or reading stories together. Shankar says these tactics can help engage and encourage a child's sense of exploration and confidence. And the findings from the study are already having an effect. In the province where the research was done, officials launched the Golden Generation Program, which will be working to enhance social interventions that can foster early childhood development. The goal is to eventually expand the program throughout Indonesia. The discovery of the first human cancer gene, the development of lasers and GPS, medical breakthroughs like open heart surgery or new blood pressure treatments. Those are all discoveries rooted in what's known as basic science. Despite the value of this research, federal funding for this type of research and development has been hard to come by. According to Brian Herman, Vice President for Research at the University of Minnesota, federal funding of basic science at universities has declined significantly since 1964, from 1.86% of GDP to just three quarters of a percent of GDP in 2012. We spoke to Herman about the reasons for this funding decline and what can be done to combat it. And he started by explaining the key differences between basic science, which I just mentioned a moment ago, and applied research. Well, I think that basic research is focused on asking fundamental questions about how something works. And it's not necessarily structured in a way to provide an applied solution to a specific problem. Whereas uh, more applied research really focuses on, can I develop an intervention about um, uh, and create a positive outcome with that intervention? So that's fundamentally the difference between basic research and applied research. Uh, basic research can be in understanding um, uh, physical principles. It can be in astronomy. It can be in biology. It can be in a number of different fields. A lot of the applied work involves some sort of engineering, some sort of analysis of data, some sort of development of either a procedure or a device or a uh, other kind of intervention to uh, ameliorate or cause some specific effect. The challenge, says Herman, is that it can take years or decades before the benefits of basic science may be seen. And that's a problem when we live in a society that's become accustomed to a rapid pace of scientific growth and discovery. Basic science takes uh, sometimes years uh, before clarity is brought to what the fundamental understanding or mechanisms are. And I think people are more interested in... in, um, in the now and having a product that can either be commercialized and raise stock prices in a quarter rather than in, in six quarters. So I think there's a societal expectation and a societal and commercial focus that is driving us towards uh, more and more rapid advances. Um, and those are difficult to predict in any 
specific way when you're talking about uh, basic science. This creates a situation where applied research is often valued and invested in more heavily than basic research. While federal funding has declined, states have not been able to step in and fill the gaps, says Herman, largely because of rising health care costs. Industry has stepped in to fund more scientific research, but it's usually focused on applied science for the reasons that Herman mentioned. There's a greater potential return on investment. So what are the effects of this funding decline? On one hand, Herman says it may take years to know because basic science is such a long-term endeavor. It may take decades before we know what kinds of discoveries or breakthroughs have been delayed or even missed. What is clear now is that other countries are poised to outpace the United States when it comes to basic research. I think the fear is, and and the data that is available tends to bear this out, that if you look at the investment, national investment in in research here, in basic research in this country, uh, compared to what other countries are doing like China, South Korea, India, they are ramping up their investments significantly at a time when we are de-investing in our research capabilities. And the great fear is that then the innovation will move from the U.S., the knowledge capabilities will move from the U.S. to these other countries, and that they're the ones where innovation and new knowledge development will occur and benefit from it, uh, whereas the U.S. then will be in a less competitive position uh, all the way around, uh, given a lower investment uh, compared to our, our peers. And if you, if you take as um, given that you know, basic science is a very fundamentally important aspect of creating applied solutions that are useful, undervaluing and underinvesting in that is going to lead eventually to a lower quality of life and uh, less innovation in our society. So what can be done? Well, Herman turns his attention back to industry funding. He sees an opportunity here if those companies can be convinced of the value of basic research. He spoke to us about a concept known as shared value, basically where the private sector can fund research that has a positive social impact and boosts the company's bottom line. Uh, This uh, state that we're in, Minnesota, has a number of global food companies headquartered here. So uh, they're very concerned about climate change because if you raise the temperature by one or two degrees, that changes completely the growing environment of the major crops that are growing in this country. And either those crops have to adapt or we have to figure out how to help them adapt to this changing temperature in order for them to still grow. So when we think about this, It's very important for the companies to understand the effects of climate change because it directly affects the ability to grow crops that they then turn into food that they sell to the rest of the world. So in that construct, there's a social good by helping ameliorate climate change and helping contain climate change. And you can make the same argument for water. You can make the same argument for the atmosphere, the the air we breathe, et cetera. Because at the end of the day, the, the negative impacts of those issues directly affect the, the um, uh, profits that these companies make. And what we're suggesting is we need to now include universities into this um, social construct because the universities are the, you know, the birthplace of new ideas, new knowledge, and new innovations, and new technologies that 
also are aimed at solving some of these societal problems but are not equipped to move these into society uh, as fast as the commercialization process is. Herman says this idea of shared value should be enticing to companies, especially as younger consumers seek out businesses that are socially responsible. And there's already evidence that it can work. One estimate from the U.S. Department of Agriculture puts the return on investment for publicly funded basic research at 43%. And according to the National Institutes of Health, Every dollar spent on basic research yields returns ranging from $10 to more than $80. That's all for this week's episode. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Montemuro. A reminder that you can always find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.